Well, today we're going to tackle one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever taught. Some call it every man's battle. Others call it mission impossible. It is a teaching that confronts us all. It is a word that commands us to change. A doctrine that challenges us inside and out. And the message is wrapped up in this one challenging and difficult word. And the word is repent. Repent. Change your mind and change your life because the king is coming to rule the world. This message is foundational. You have heard that Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. But I say to you, repentance is life And the Sermon on the Mount is just details, but very important details. Before we get into the sermon text, I want to remind you of some of the things that you have already heard and already learned with Pastor Bill. Not only did Jesus call us to repent, but he also called us to lament our sins, to implement deep changes in our life, and to experiment with a new way of life, the blessed life, the shalom life, the happy life. There are at least two Beatitudes that frame Jesus' teaching on lust and adultery. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the pure in heart. Truly happy are the people who crave justice and want to see the world put back to right. As Dallas Willard put it, it may be that the wrong is in themselves. Perhaps they have failed so badly that night and day they cringe before their own sin and inwardly scream to be made pure. Perhaps even more than that, they have an insatiable and unquenchable desire to be made right with God. They want God's righteousness and not their own wickedness to shape their life and to satisfy their hearts. Truly happy are the souls who single-mindedly seek one thing. They are centered and focused on cultivating the holy life. They demonstrate on the outside what they desire on the inside. They do not treat others with mixed motives or hypocritical hearts. They do not prey on others with lust, but they do pray for others with love. Their eyes do not drift around because their hearts are anchored. Their eyes are not full of adultery because their hearts are full of faithfulness. As John Calvin says, They take no delight in cunning and craftiness, and they express nothing either by word or look, which they do not feel in their heart. Why are these folks truly happy? Why do they enjoy the shalom life? Jesus says it is because they will be satisfied and because they will see God. It's crucial that you hold to these promises in your heart and mind as we prepare to tackle Jesus' teaching on lust. 
And I say that with earnestness because if you don't hold to these promises, you will likely slip into a kind of legalistic despair, a kind of hopelessness. So hold on to these promises. I want to remind you of one more thing that you've already learned before we get into the meat of this text. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to most people, that seems so daunting and feels so discouraging. Like, there is no way I could ever be more righteous than those super religious people who knew so much about the law and the prophets. They were professional religious people. Well, truth be known, they might dress the part and they might look holier than thou on the surface, but underneath it all, they are dirty, rotten, filthy scoundrels. And so, surpassing their so-called righteousness is not as hard as it seems. It's not as hard as it sounds. And here's why. Because they're not even righteous. They're wearing costumes and masks. And it's all for show. Your righteousness can easily surpass their righteousness. Why? Because your righteousness comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And their righteousness never comes at all. Okay, so I've stalled long enough. (laughs) I know that this is a hard teaching, and I know it's a hard passage. But let's be honest, you don't have to go all the way to Cairo to get out of preaching it. (laughs) That's a little extreme. (laughs) I know that Bill would not run from a challenge. And nor will I. Jesus opened his mouth and taught us, saying... You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And at this, our countenance fell because so many of us feel in our hearts, feel in our bones, in our bodies, exactly what Jesus is talking about. Notice that Jesus did not loosen up the seventh commandment. He did not relax it at all. In fact, he rewove it and tightened it up to help us understand not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching the letter of the law. They were doing what many evangelical Christians do. They were teaching technical obedience to the law is enough. They weren't teaching true obedience to the law. They wanted their hearers to adhere to the letter only, but not keep the spirit of the law. They're not concerned about what a man or woman might think or feel or imagine in their heart so long as they did not act on it in their body, bring it to the surface for other people to see. There were even scribes and Pharisees who taught that so long as a man did not engage in sexual activity with a married woman, he would would be okay. He would not be uh, breaking this law. 
He could be involved with an unmarried woman and maybe get around it somehow. But Jesus exposes the shallowness of lust and the depths of love by moving beyond the letter to to address the spirit of the law. He wants us to see that what happens in our hearts, what we do in the imagination of our life matters deeply to the Lord God. To get a little help in explaining this, I want to turn our attention to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which actually explores the spirit of the seventh commandment and not just the letter. When you have some time, go back and look at Larger Catechism 138 and 139. But this is what it says as it talks to us positively and negatively, positively about duties required in the seventh commandment, negatively about what is prohibited in the seventh commandment. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Answer, the duties required in the seventh commandment are the following. Chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. The preservation of chastity in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over our eyes and all the senses. Temperance and keeping of chaste company. Modesty in apparel. Marriage by those who do not have the gift of abstinence with conjugal love and cohabitation. Diligent labor in our callings and shunning all occasions of uncleanness And resisting temptations to it. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment. Besides the neglect of the duties required. Are the following. Adultery. Fornication. Rape. Incest. Sodomy. And all unnatural lusts and desires. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and desires. All corrupt or filthy communication or listening to them. Unrestrained looks, brazen, shameless, or seductive behavior. Immodest apparel, prohibiting lawful marriages and allowing unlawful marriages. Allowing, tolerating, or running places of prostitution or visiting and using them. Undue delay of marriage, having more wives or more husbands than one at the same time. Unjust divorce, unjust desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, and unchaste company. Lewd songs, books, pictures, dances, or stage plays. And all other provocations to uncleanness or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or in others. Now, that's a lot to take in. But go back and reflect on those things if you want to understand more about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law and how to pursue obedience to them. Jesus is moving his hearers beyond the simple letter of the law so that no one can simply check a box and say, well, I have not committed sexual sin in public for others to notice. Therefore, I am righteous. Jesus says, go deeper than that. Look at your heart. What is it you desire? What are you pursuing? What do you wish you could have? 
And that's where the real battle takes place. Now we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James put it this way in his epistle in chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, in light of all that we've heard just up to this point, it's at this point in a sermon when some pastors would go for the kill shot. And you know what I mean by that. They would go for the kill shot and do lots and lots of guilt tripping and fear mongering and finger pointing and brow beating and life shaming. Because every pastor knows what it looks and feels like to be beset with these temptations. And every pastor has spent enough time with his parishioners to know that no one is untouched by these temptations. But Jesus hates that sort of approach. The finger wagging. The brow beating. The guilt tripping. He hates it. And so do I. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And I'm more interested in life than death today. We don't know each other pastorally or personally as well as we might like. But you and I know enough about people. We know enough about life to know that everyone within earshot of this sermon today has been or is being or will be affected by sexual immorality in some way. Perhaps in many ways, not just one way, but in a variety of ways. The only example I will venture to present to you today is the example of pornography. It has been called the scourge of our time, a silent cancer of the soul, a plague of technology, an epidemic of global proportions, a new drug, more than likely. It has already reached out and touched you and your family in one way or another. Whether you wanted it to or not. Whether you invited it into your house or not. Whether you searched for it or not. We live in a world that is inundated with this sort of thing. Sex sells. It is extremely lucrative. As various news outlets have reported just this year, this is a $100 billion industry. $100 billion, with a B, dollar industry worldwide. And it exists because lust craves it, because the human heart wants it. It thrives because its lies seem so true. They feel so good. Lust claims that love without sex is impossible. And that sex without love satisfies. And both claims are wrong. 
In his book, Steering Through Chaos, Oz Guinness points out that sex has become omnipresent in our world. There are fewer and fewer places you can go, see, or enjoy without being confronted, assaulted, bombarded by sexual imagery. He says modern modern advertisers have capitalized on lust in ways never before thought possible. The cult of sexual pleasure and physical beauty has been made integral to identity, clothing, lifestyle, and status in our sex-crazed, sex-obsessed culture. Once upon a time, not long ago, sociologists were warning us that we were amusing ourselves to death. And then during the height of the technological revolution, they were warning us that we were amazing ourselves to death. And now in the 21st century, they are warning us that we are arousing ourselves to death. As bad as all that is, keep in mind that there is nothing new under the sun. Lust has always been in the world, wrecking lives wrecking families, wrecking communities. It's been doing this from the beginning. I'll give you a few examples from the Old Testament. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the result is they were deceived by lust and deported from the garden. Samson, the mighty judge and savior of Israel, had a weakness for pretty women. He did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. And on more than one occasion, his eyes led him astray, led him into traps, led him into trouble. When the secret of his great strength was revealed, he was taken captive and his eyes were gouged out and he was bound with bronze shackles. He was deceived by lust and debilitated. Amnon, one of David's sons, was so tormented by lust that he actually made himself sick and haggard physically over this lust. On one occasion, he tricked his half-sister into visiting him privately. He forced himself on her. And despite her many loud protests and resistance, he would not listen to her. He overpowered her and violated her and lay with her. And afterward, he despised her and sent her away from his life and locked her out for good. He hated her because he hated himself. He was deceived by lust and devastated. Ezekiel the prophet was shown a vision of the elders of Israel gazing upon vile images in the secrecy of a private room. The Lord God showed the prophet this vision and said, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. 
But he who searches the heart and knows the truth about every man saw what they were doing in the dark, in the secrecy of their chambers. They were deceived by lust and defrocked from the service of the Lord. I share those stories to point out that lust is a deceitful and deadly sin. The church fathers considered lust one of the seven deadly sins. And they often portrayed it as a person with large, bulging, bloodshot eyes. Think of Gollum rubbing the ring, his precious. Think of yourself or others you know rubbing their smartphone, their precious. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not saying here that it is wrong for a man to notice that a woman is attractive. He's not saying that it is wrong for a woman to notice that a man is handsome. Sarah, Rachel, and Abigail were described as beautiful women. David was described as handsome and ruddy, acknowledging that someone is pretty or nice looking is not the issue. Jesus is saying that it is wrong to notice that someone is handsome or beautiful and then to go on to dwell on that beauty, to fantasize about that person to treat them as an object of your desire to dehumanize them and to treat them simply as a thing that you could use for your own pleasure. Peter Lightheart put it this way, Jesus condemns the intentional and purposeful gaze that cultivates lust and arouses evil desire and stirs up the heart to violate God's law. It's the gaze associated with looking at or watching pornography that is in view here. The gaze that produces those large, bulging, bloodshot eyes. Well, now that we know that lust is a real problem in our world, in our families, in our churches, in our own hearts, what can we do about it? What can we do to fix it? Notice that Jesus calls for radical surgery. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If you take a moment and read this again with your imagination engaged, you will see just how violent Bloody and gruesome the nature of this instruction is. Some people take it literally. There are stories throughout church history of people who actually maimed and mutilated their physical bodies because they were trying to take Jesus at his word. 
If only I could get rid of my eyes, I wouldn't look with lust in my heart. If only I could get rid of my hands, I wouldn't reach out and touch things that are not permitted. If only I could get rid of other parts of my body, then I could live a chaste life. Other people take this teaching metaphorically. They think Jesus just meant something like, get rid of the things that cause you to stumble. Things that trigger lust, that disorder your love. Things that scandalize you, that trip you up. Cut out things like movies or music, social media or the internet, smartphones or even certain friendships. And I must say that these are all good things to do. These are all practical and worthy things to do. And perhaps on a case-by-case basis, we would say that for some of us, they are absolutely necessary for us to do. Why? Because if nothing else, they will help you deal with the symptoms of your lust. But it's only part of what we must do. Think of what's happening here. If you cut off your hand or gouge out your eye or cut off the internet or stop going to the gym at certain times or avoid vacations at the beach, you are still left with the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. These approaches may seem wise and they may have their use, but we say that because they appear to require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help. They are of no value in conquering the lust of the eyes or the lust of the heart. Jesus' deeper point here is that we need to do more than change the outside. We need to do more than reconfigure our flesh. We must change the inside. And what we need is not simply the removal of a hand or an eye or unplugging from technology. What we need is a change of heart and a change of life. We need to recalibrate our eyes. We need to repent from the heart. Why? Because the king and his kingdom are at hand. We often wonder what God's will for us is in life. What does God want me to do with my life? And usually we ask that question around something that seems epic. Does he want me to move across the world and become a missionary? Does he want me to sell all my possessions and give to the poor? What does God want me to do with my life? And we look for some big epic thing to do. But we overlook the basic fundamental things that are so clearly revealed to us. The Spirit of God says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And that means you should avoid sexual immorality in all its forms. That means that you should learn to control your own vessel, your own body, 
in a way that is holy and honorable to God. Not in chaotic, passionate lust like people who do not know God. That means that you should not mistreat each other or take advantage of any brother or sister in sexual, emotional, or any other way. Why? Because the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as you have been warned before many times. For God did not call you to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now for all of you who feel burning in your conscience, the burden of guilt, and the baggage of shame weighing you down, because you know what God knows about you, and that is the truth. You know all the ways you have trespassed and trampled God's law. You know the ways you have committed sexual sins in your own heart, in your own body, in your own life. You know all the ways you've been promiscuous, if not in the flesh, at least in the spirit. For any of you who are feeling that kind of burning, that kind of burden and that baggage, I want you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the gospel that I proclaim to you today. Jesus says, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's hard for us even to imagine losing one part of our body in order to save the rest of our body. It's hard to imagine entering heaven mutilated or maimed, but Jesus wants us to think about that. He wants us to imagine what it might look like for us to go in without one eye, without a right hand, without some other body part. He wants us to think about it. He wants us to count the cost, to take it seriously, to feel the weight of his teaching. He wants you to know that there is a way out of the bondage of sin into the freedom of heaven. Jesus wants you to see that he practiced what he preached. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness every day of his life. And he hungered and thirsted for righteousness so much that he decided it would be better to die than to sin. And that is what he did. He lived hungry and thirsty for righteousness. He died hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Jesus was handed over to religious leaders and political rulers to be falsely accused and condemned to death. He was stripped, beaten, and flogged in his body. He was crucified and mocked and shamed. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind that he was like one from whom men hide their faces. 
Not even the world could bear to look upon his maimed and marred body. He was despised, pierced, and crushed. He was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus descended into hell, maimed and mutilated by the hands of wicked men, by the death of the cross. And then he entered heaven alive, bearing the scars of his sacrifice. All of that to say that it was better for Jesus to lose some flesh and blood and tears at the cross and go into heaven maimed and mutilated than to save his body whole and descend into hell never to come out again. Jesus was pure in heart. He committed no sin, yet he became a sin bearer in order to sprinkle our hearts clean and wash our bodies with pure water. Jesus was pure in heart so that you might see God face to face. And so I ask you, what would you rather see going forward? What would you rather see? Another pornographic image? Another erotic video? Another woman's husband? Another man's wife? Another person who is not your spouse? Or would you rather see the face of the true and living God? Truly happy are the pure in heart because they will see God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.